You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. My name is Ty Gasson. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Community Church. And here at our church, uh, first of all, we are grateful for each and every one of you being here this morning. Uh, there's a few better ways to start off uh, really any week, but especially a new year, than to devote your time to the Lord. And so here at Providence, uh, that is what we do. Uh, we are a people surrounded, uh, surrounded by a single and compelling vision to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And so everything that we do, whether it's coffee, whether it's how we do the parking lot, uh, student ministry, kids ministry, uh, all the things that we do are to that end, to leverage everything that we have, all that we do to the glory of God and the good of others. And so our goal is to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And this morning, we're going to keep channeling that desire uh, by starting a new series titled Revival and Reformation. And the idea behind this series is to start off in the month of January, both by revival turning back to God, because that's the only way that it happens, and also looking towards reformation, reaching the world and reaching others. That that kind of growth in life that happens inside of us doesn't just stay in us, but it goes out. So this morning we're going to be in uh, Psalm, 80, uh, Psalm 85. And so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, you should ha- uh, see one underneath one of the seats in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you can call your own. Consider that a gift from us to you. So again, we're going to be in Psalm 85. And if you can stand and are able, would you please uh, rise for the reading of God's word? Providence, hear the word of the Lord in Psalm 85. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year to you. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, glad you're here. Thanks for making us a part of your week. Uh, we really hope you enjoy yourselves. Uh, we've been going <clears throat> one week now uh, as a church, or one week into our fast, and uh, I pray that you've experienced some fruit from that already. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to join us in our fast, maybe you were out of town on Christmas and then New Year's, and so you weren't able to kind of hear uh, about the podcast. As a church, we're, we're fasting together, particularly for media. That's uh, 
there, there's a standardization to it and that's the aim, but every family's doing something different. And so if you haven't joined in on that, we would encourage you uh, to join in with us. It's never too late. Jump in uh, this week for the rest of the month. We think that it will be fruitful. This morning, like Ty said, I want to kick off a four-part series uh, that will coincide with this uh, January time of fasting entitled Revival and Reformation. Last week, uh, we talked about the purpose for the fast and why, as an elder team, we thought that it would be pertinent uh, and prudent to spend some time fasting at the beginning of this year, petitioning God and, uh, and expecting something like revival. And this morning, I want to talk a little bit about that uh, defining revival. What exactly do we mean by that? What are the obstacles to something like that that we are going to need to overcome? And then what should, be, what should our posture be before God uh, to pursue something like that? So we got a lot of work to do. I'll, I will admit that I am a little ambitious this morning in how many notes that I have, okay? And so I want to jump right in, but before I do, I want to pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Father, we humble ourselves this morning under your mighty hand. We confess to you and agree with you that apart from you, there is nothing that we can do in order to quench the thirst of our souls this morning, to satisfy the hunger of our hearts. And so we come before you empty-handed, but with faith, because we know that you provide, that you have promised to do so. And so we do ask that you would minister to us through the power of your word, the truth of your word. God, you know us better than we know ourselves. You are much wiser than us. Your ways are greater than us. And so we ask now that as we discuss this topic, that we would, not with our flesh, but by the power of your spirit, eradicate ideas about something like revival that have come from us or from the world and embrace that which your scripture, your timeless word has told us about such a thing. And then we ask you to do a miracle, Lord, that only you can do, that you would fan into flame a desire in our hearts for something like that to happen in our day. We love you, God, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So one way to look at the history of the people of God, both Israel and the Old Testament, uh, New Testament Christians, and even historically the last 2,000 years of the church could be, this is not the only way, but it could be a series of of revivals, a series of revivals. Now, we could consider uh, revivals such as were experienced by, for instance, the children of Israel uh, when they were in Egypt. This is kind of a beginning point in your Bible. And they're underneath the, the slavery of the Egyptian Pharaoh. And God, by his mighty hand and outstretched arm, he brings them out. And on the other side of the Red Sea, after the Egyptian armies are swallowed up by the Red Sea in God's hand, Uh, there's a revival that's experienced amongst the Israelites where they begin to sing, all of them, millions of them together, a song of God's great victory. Of course, later on, quickly, very quickly, as is the pattern, uh, the children of Israel begin to complain and say, we want to go back to Egypt. The menu is not too good in the desert, right? Now, right after this, what we get is the Sinai incident where God calls Moses up to the mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God into the tablets of stone, And comes back down, and we all remember the golden calf incident where the children of Israel, after having just had this very deep and meaningful spiritual revival, have now turned back to this golden calf that they melted down with the gold that they had plundered from the Egyptians, and they're dancing around it. And of course, after this, something surprising happens. Moses rebukes them for this. He grinds down the idol to powder, 
that he says, drink your idol, fill of your idol. It goes back up on the mountain, but then what happens? He comes back down and revival has broken out. They all cry out with one voice, we will make a covenant with our God. Of course, this continues on. The revival, there's a revival experience in Joshua's generation as they enter into the land of promise and they begin to see victory. The book of Judges is legitimately seven different stories of seven different revivals led by various judges. It could be Gideon or Deborah or Jephthah. There's also a revival, make no mistake, under King Saul. We know that King Saul ended up falling away from the Lord and his kingship was taken away. But nonetheless, when King Saul first took over the kingdom, the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines and Saul leads a great revival of the people of God against the enemies of God and they get the Ark back. Then we see after the fall of Saul into pride and sin that there's another revival under King David. Time would not you know, give us the ability to continue on with this, but we get more books in this. Kings and Chronicles tells us about the revival during King Asa's time, the revival during Hezekiah's time, Josiah's time. All in Israel prior to the exile to Babylon. This is followed by the revival in Ezra's time. And then in Nehemiah's time. We often think that Ezra and Nehemiah's time are the exact same time, but they're not. There's generations apart. And one is a revival to rebuild the temple. Another is a revival to rebuild the wall surrounding the temple. But nonetheless, people coming back to God consistently. This, of course, leads us to the New Testament where most of us think, ah, you know, That's Old Testament stuff. New Testament stuff isn't there. But the first thing that we are met up with when the New Testament begins is a revival. And it's not the leader, Jesus. He comes quickly after. But it's a man named John the Baptist in the wilderness who cries out and says, prepare you the way of the Lord. And the Bible records all of Judea came out to hear this man. A massive revival of people coming out and being baptized in the Jordan River. Then, of course, the greatest revival to ever begin and led by the king himself, the Lord Jesus. We see this after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. A revival breaks out on the day of Pentecost, where the Spirit of God's poured out on the church, and thousands are saved, and then from that moment on, there's a mass church planting effort where the apostles go out and begin to evangelize. Now, most of us either think that, hey, the revival stopped at Pentecost, or when I say the word revival, you immediately think, like, just the Great Awakening. Or maybe you think the Protestant Reformation. Or maybe you think, like, I'm going to get a tent next week. And then you and I are going to get into the tent and then we're going to have a revival. You know, there's, there's many things that we think about when we think of revival. But we need to know, um, we don't have enough time to talk about how many times God uniquely has visited the, his people and revival has been the result. St. Patrick showing up to the continent or to the country of Ireland in the 5th century and some very ruthless pagan people being converted to Christ, the whole island itself. Revivals in Africa, revivals in Europe, revivals in Asia, revivals over the last 2,000 years we could go throughout history. There's tons. Now I say this to reveal a simple, th- a simple thought, namely that revival is a pattern that we ought to expect even though it is not normative, at least not in the essence of that word. There's obviously something supernatural about revival. Um, that's why we don't show up every single Sunday expecting it to be like Pentecost. Because something unique happened at Pentecost. We can long for that, but we know that it's most likely not going to happen. I loved uh, what I think Jonathan Edwards said that the Second Great Awakening or the Great Awakening stopped because it couldn't keep going. That people, if they continued on in this state, they couldn't physically take it. That they were praying so long, so constantly, weeping, not eating. There's, many of them were not concerned about their jobs. Like there's like all about repentance and there's crazy things were happening. So yeah, the revival stopped because if not, we all would have just ended up 
the colonies would have been like Roanoke. You know, it's all gone. And you just got a little carving in the wood. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't expect them because there's a pattern in the revivals. God delights in visiting his people at special times, at special ways, with his presence as he sees fit. And it is his providential will to draw us back to himself, to bless us in spite of our rebellion. That's God's pattern. So, quickly, because we have a lot of work to do, what is revival? What is revival? J.I. Packer uh, says revival is this. Quote, revival is God's extending of his kingdom through the restoration of his people, his church. And it's like the breaking of a wave over them, which renews an intensifying and accelerated work of his grace to individuals and to whole communities. So, so revival is like the regular work of God in the earth in advancing his kingdom on fast forward and steroids. It just, things start happening stronger and faster quickly. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that most Christian uh, maturity happens incrementally. If you're a baby Christian, you might be thinking, that's not true with me, man. I changed overnight. That's, that's called conversion. And yes, you did change overnight. It's called being born again. And like in six months, I'm not trying to depress you, but in six months, they start to realize things start to even out a little bit. And you start to realize, ah, there's some incremental. Sometimes in your Christian life, you might feel like I'm taking five steps forward, 20 steps back. This is incremental, right? But God's still growing you. On a, when we plot the graph, we're still making it up Mount Doom like the hobbits. You know, We're just barefoot and hairy feet. But we're getting there. Revival is when this accelerates. Things start to change in ways that were very difficult for maybe years. Maybe it's been difficult for you to struggle through sin or through marital relations, and then all of a sudden, these things are no longer difficult. Just, the Spirit of God comes in such a way that you are no longer entangled by these things as you were before, and you don't understand why except for God's been drawing this desire out of you. Desires that you wished were there but weren't there before all of a sudden are there. This is what happens when revival comes. In short, revival is when God visits his people in a unique way. And the whole purpose is to restore them to himself because of his loving kindness, because this is who God is. Now, a few observations regarding revival. Number one, revival is a work of God's sovereign grace. I say this first because just because I'm going to preach a series, four-part series on revival doesn't mean that I'm then expecting that God will have his arm twisted and we're having revival, you know. So I'm not bringing fog machines out. And I'm not going to, you know, try to make things happen. God brings revival. Revival does not come by the will of man because it's not in man's means to accomplish such a thing. Man cannot manufacture it, cannot manifest its results. It must come from the divine hand of almighty God alone. And this is maybe most important and in his providential timing alone. Having said that, number two, revival is something that's promised by God to his people when they return to him through repentance and faith. So although it is sovereignly up to God to bring revival, he has promised that he will. He doesn't tell us when, he doesn't tell us how. He just tells us he will. And we have to rely upon this promise that one of the things that hinders us is our own rebellion. And then number three, revival always comes, at least by example, by the means of prayer. Revival always comes by the means of prayer. We see this throughout the, the entirety of the scriptures. God begins to respond to the prayers and the groans of his people. Now, Jonathan Edwards explained this, and he's a firsthand account of the Great Awakening, so we should listen to him. He said, God desires for his great blessings to be sought before they are bestowed. Why, though? He says, in order that they be greater valued upon being received in this way. 
So he says, God likes it when we seek out the blessings and then he gives those blessings because we actually receive and, and cherish the, the gift more when we've sought him out for it. And so it is commensurate to the glory that he deserves, more so when we pray and seek out God's face. Now, J.I. Packer would go on to give seven traits of revival, and I want to be very quick with this because there's a couple things I really want to get to. But this is maybe helpful in helping us define what revival is. He says, every time you see revival, number one, you'll see God coming close. God comes close to man. Now, as a caveat, I need to make mention, I'm not saying that God's presence is not near to us now, at least in his normative way. God has promised us that he will be with us. We all know the passages. He'll never leave us or forsake us. Or where two or three of you are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of you. God is present with us now. But what J.I. Packer means is that when you see revival, there is a uniqueness to how God manifests his presence among us. Number two, he says, when God comes close, sin is seen. Sin is seen. So suddenly during revival, what will happen is as God comes nearer, sin becomes more evident to us and more, not just perplexing, but sin becomes more abhorrent. It becomes more dark. We see sin for what it is. Biblical examples of this would be like Job when he doesn't understand his suffering and then God visits him at the end of the book. If you've read Job, actually some of you may be in a Bible reading plan. You may be reading Job now. If you remember, Job is asking God why in the world the suffering is happening to him. And then he thinks he's going to have this, you know, sit down with God. At the end, he has a sit down with God, but he has this very odd response to it. He, he thinks, I'm going to question God, as he does, and God will respond. And instead, when Job walks into the whirlwind, he says, God, I've heard of you with my ears, but now I've seen you with my eyes, and I despise myself. Why would he say such a thing? Is he just like a glutton for punishment, a masochistic kind of guy, real melancholy? Is he just a real Eeyore? No, because seeing God's, gl- God's glory and holiness also reveals the antithesis of that, our unholiness. This is what the book of Leviticus is about. Peter, upon entering the boat, and Jesus says, let down your nets, and then he brings up the, the nets and the fish all of a sudden, after a night of getting nothing, he has so much fish in the nets that his boats begin to sink. He doesn't say, thank you, Jesus. He says, depart from me. I am a sinful man. There's something about being in the near presence of God in this way that brings sin as it truly is and as it truly has infected us to light to us. Now, that may seem dark to you, but number three, this is key. J.I. Packer says the next thing that happens in revival is the gospel is loved. The gospel becomes more cherished than merely a story, but it becomes deeply loved by the people. Because once we see our sin, then our Savior, like the dark backdrop of a painting, gives, gives credence to the light that shines forth. Our sin is like that dark backdrop, and then Christ shines forth, extending grace to us, and the gospel and revival becomes loved. It's not merely a story that we believe. It is the truth that we possess, cherish, protect, love at all costs. Number four, repentance goes deep. So it's no longer surface level. During revival, repentance begins to be a deep issue of the heart. You see this in the book of Acts when Paul the apostle shows up to certain, certain towns and revival begins to break out. They start doing crazy things like burning their idols in the city streets, you know, and, and there's riots that start to you know, break out. It's pretty wild. Number five, God works rapidly. Again, this is that acceleration of work that happens during revival. Number six, and this is key, the world feels the impact. The world feels the impact. Sometimes, we need to get this out of our head, when we think of revival, we think extended worship services on Sundays. That's what we think. Praying more 
and then we just tell Alec, play the chorus three more times, you know. No, revival, at least in history, there's changes that begin to happen that cannot be explained merely by man's virtue. Societies begin to shape and form. Sin begins to be abhorred, and the things of God begin to be delighted in, in a way that can't be pointed to man's concoction. No one points at one church and says, it was their small group ministry and their model that really did it. It's like, no, everybody attributes it to God. No one points to politicians and says, oh, he turned everything around. It's like, no, just like in the Second Great Awakening, everybody said God showed up and things changed. The world takes notice. And then number seven, Jack Packer says this one, and it's something for us to consider. Satan always seeks to keep pace. In other words, every time you'll see revival, Satan will seek to run as fast as he can to sow seeds of discord and to disrupt that which God desires to do. If you ever want to see an account of this, read The Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards, and he speaks about how the enemy was constantly at the heels of the people to undermine what God was doing. Now, next question. If revival is so prevalent, and I think that you could admit that it is in the scriptures and in history, why is it necessary why do the normative means of Sundays and, and, and church and the normative means of us going through the rhythms of life, submitting to Jesus, why is that not enough? It's necessary because the forgetfulness, the stubbornness, the sinfulness of the human heart is the rule, and there is no exception. That these things are the pattern of man just as much as the pattern of God is to call us back. It's our pattern to wander. I think we just sang it earlier. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. This idea that you and I are prone to wander is not just pious Christians who acknowledge it. It is the rule. Sinfulness of humankind. The pattern of revival exists precisely because the pattern of rebellion exists, and it's God's countermeasure of grace and mercy. God revives us because we are bound through sin to run. And he loves bringing us back. He loves drawing us near. He doesn't delight in the rebellion, but he delights in us, loves us, cares for us, pursues us. This is who God is. And this is why we read Psalm 85. We're only going to read a handful of verses, but Psalm 85 is thematic. It shows us the pattern. Let's start with verse 1. Lord, you were favorable to your land. Notice the past tense here. It's from the sons of Korah. You were favorable to your land. You restored past tense, the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath and you turned from your hot anger. All of this is recounting the history of Israel. And in light of this, the sons of Korah will then break out into song, restore us again. Do it again. Because you've done it before, do it again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Notice their words. Will you be angry with us forever through our rebellion? You know, will you prolong your anger to all generations? Listen to this line. Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. So this is the pattern. God delivers his children. He blesses his children. He adorns his children with every good gift. And then, step two, secure in their pleasures, God's children forget the Lord their God. Step three, the people begin to stop their ears to the word of God. They don't hear the prophets. They don't hear the word of God. They don't hear the preachers. They seek out idols for their own devices. Step four, the Lord gives them over to their idols and gives them what they want. 
Step five, the people groan and call out to him under the results of those idols, which are always negative. And then, of course, we start the cycle over again, and God delivers his people again. Now, I thought about putting together a graphic for us. Have you ever seen these memes on the internet where you see these cycles and somebody, there's an arrow and it says, you are here in the story? Well, if you want to know where you are here in the story, the Lord turning you over to idols, turning us, turning our nation over to idols, and we get the full measure of that which we've told him for generations that we're uninteresting in hearing him, we want the idols, we're at that place now. Now, I want to say this, we have begun to groan, I think. But we're met with the same situation that Israel was left to regularly. Will we cry out for God and revival, or will we continue to stop our ears and refuse to hear? I want to read from Isaiah 30. You don't have to turn there because we don't have the time to do so. But Isaiah 30, verses 8 through 18. I'm just going to read some of this. I wish I could read all 18 verses. But this is the word of the Lord through Isaiah to Israel. Now go and write it before them on a tablet. Inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. Now, as a pause, why would God want them to write this down and scribe it so that it could be a witness forever? And the reason is simple, so you and I can read this and learn from it. That it's for you and I as much as it was for them. Let's keep going. For they, Israel, are rebellious people, lying children. Children, this is so key, unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. They say to their seers, do not see. To their prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. And therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall bulging out into collapse whose breaking comes suddenly and in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that smashed so ruthlessly among its fragments not a shard is found and which to take fire from the hearth to dip water out of the cistern. So God says the children of Israel at this time were rebellious people and they had a specific bend. And that bend was to look at their prophets, to look at their seers, to look at those people who were sent by God to bring them the word and to say, don't tell me what I don't want to hear. You tell me what I want to hear. Don't preach to me tough words. Don't tell me to come back to the Lord. We're having a good time here. Give me smoothness. Don't give me the tough stuff. I don't want to hear it. And so God's response to them is because you don't want to hear my voice, this is how I will respond. And we think of judgment only in terms of God's anger. But how merciful is it for God not to ultimately just turn us over to the judgment of our idols who hate us deeply? Now, one of the first inclinations we have to overcome, I think, while reading something like this, is pious snobbery. And pious snobbery, it looks something like this. We read this and we say, man, the Israelites are so silly. They're so obstinate. Like, they, don't, they won't just trust God. He keeps doing all these miraculous things and they keep just rejecting him. Like, we look at the Israelites, we say, why are they bowing down in front of these idols that are of gold, like Molech, animals? You know, like, who, like who would sacrifice their children to something like that? We're, and we think of ourselves and like, we are way too spiritual for that. And I want you to understand we live in a time right now that's like Gideon's time. And we respond just like the Israelites did. Like there are, like remember Gideon, what his first call from God was to do, go into the idol temple, tear on the idol. We have satanic idols put in Capitol buildings in our country right now. And all of us are like, oh, don't be so crazy. You're being a conspiracy theorist. 
Millions of your dollars and my dollars are paid in taxes and it goes to fund the murder of children in the womb every year. And we wonder how they sacrificed one child or two child during the harvest seasons. And listen to me, some of you might be upset at me for even mentioning such a thing, proving the point. You say something like, well, some of those women, Court, they've, they've been, you don't even know what they've been through. And my point is, I know, I love them, and they've been lied to to think that killing their kid will fix it. I care about them. Should we not care about them? Should we not love them for this very reason and not be cowed into submission by lies? Lies. In short, I just want to say, we are just as susceptible as the Israelites were to adopt the idols of our culture today. And because human nature does not change, even though the times do, we need to be brought back to the word of God because the remedy doesn't change either. The second thing we have to avoid is enlightened snobbery. And that looks something like this. This is for the Christian that might say, Court, I notice that you're getting a little riled up. But my friend, these are Old Testament verses. God is not like that anymore. Jesus came to give us grace, and now we have progressed beyond the speculations of divine judgment and spiritual darkness. Now the law of Christ is love, and if we just let people be, God will not smite anyone. He isn't displeased. Calm down. You are merely being an alarmist. A fundamentalist is what you're being. And the first thing I will say that should give you pause to this response is to reflect on the fact that that's exactly what every apostate Israelite said to every prophet before they beat and killed them. Oh, that's not going to happen to us. Everything's fine. Look at the horses we got from Egypt. We can flee, and we'll get away if they try to, they try to get to us. There's no problems. Everything's good. God's not angry. Stop being such a Debbie Downer. You remember King Ahab? They're about to go out to war, and they're like, let's ask the prophets, see what God thinks about the war. So what does he do? He musters up together all these prophets that he's already bought and paid off, and they all tell him, You're, you will surely be blessed by God, and you will win. And Jehoshaphat, he's a wise king from Judah, he goes, eh, maybe we should get one other, you know, just mix it up a little bit. What about this prophet named Micah? Let's bring him. And then it says Ahab groans inwardly, ugh, this guy never Never preaches. He never prophesies good about me. I want nothing to do with what he has to say. Of course we know that he shows up and he says, no. Um, at first he tells him, oh yeah, all the other prophets are right. Keep on going. And then Jehoshaphat says, no, no, come on, tell us the truth. He says, okay, I'll tell you the truth. You're going to die. You're going to go off. You're going to get destroyed. And you know what they did to him? They didn't say, give this guy a medal for being brave and saying what no one else would say. Oh, no, no. They threw him in jail. And Jesus told the Pharisees this. He says, you have killed every prophet, every single prophet I've ever sent you, and now you're going to kill the son. He told a parable about it. And the Pharisees were so angry, and the Bible records, because they, they believed that perhaps he was speaking about them. No, friends, the prophets were not just doomsdayers. They're not just wishing ill on our, on our nation or on their nation at the time. These men wanted their nation to survive. They seemed like they were the guys who wanted to kill all the fun simply because they were showing up to debauch parties saying, hey, um, this is not going to end well. And nobody likes that guy, right? But I want you to hear, this is like you being angry at the guy who runs up to you at the gas station and stops you from lighting a match. And, And the reason, after all, is because you're just trying to enjoy a cig. And you're mad at him because he's stopping you from being destroyed and destroying everybody around. 
No, friends, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Sin displeased God in the Old Testament, and guess what? He didn't change his mind about it. The cross was God's reminder to us of how he feels about sin. It's just that our Savior took it for us. It's not that God is no longer displeased with it. It's that he, he was willing to go to the cross and bear it for us. The patterns of God to judge nations are just as sure and trustworthy today as they were in the Old Testament. Now, the good news, my friends, is the remedy is just as trustworthy and sure as well. The last thing we have to overcome is recency bias. And that recency bias goes something like this. Court, this has been happening my whole lifetime. It's always going to be this way. Listen, some of you who are a little older, you might say, listen, I lived through the 60s. This happens. No big, you know, we're going to get over it. It's ebbs and flows. God hasn't laid down his hand of judgment while people were having, you know, their fun on the hills of Woodstock. So, uh, you know, don't worry about it. And I want to say to you, this is not so. We think in terms of weeks and days and hours and months and years, and God thinks in terms of generations. He thinks in terms of centuries. And he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He gives generational patience. He will give generations time. But he also tells us when he passed by Moses, he did not just say, I am slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He also said, but I will, I will reserve judgment to the third and fourth generation. Once the wick is done, he responds. The frog in the pot boils because he has gotten so used to the water that he swims in that he can't imagine that it would ever get hot enough to roast him until it is. And by that time, it's over. Now, what are these conditions of revival? I wish I had more time, but we don't have much. The book of Zechariah, verse one through, or chapter one, verses one through six, tells us this. This is, we're going to get into this book a lot more in the next three weeks. It's a, it's a prophetic book about revival in Israel. And Zechariah says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edu, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. So he admits, There was judgment on your fathers that sent the Israelites to exile. Then he says, Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Return to me and I will return to you. Now we might be asking, well, why is it this, why is it that, I thought you said that God sovereignly does this. Why is he putting out these conditions that we need to return in order for him to return? And I want to mention to you, notice that if apart from the word of the Lord first coming to them, they would not know that the return was called for. But also, human agency is involved in this return. And it looks something like this. We are called to furnish the boat put it in the water, put the sails up, set the course. But guess what has to happen for that boat to move? The wind has to blow. A farmer has to plant the seeds, plow the ground, pull out the weeds, till it, make sure that no animals come in and take those seeds, particularly birds. But guess what still has to happen? The sun has to rise and the rain has to come. Revival is, Jesus told us, like the wind. When the spirit comes, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, but you can see the effects of it. And only God can send it. But our call is to return to him. And we mustn't look too far, too far to see this pattern emerge everywhere in scripture. Where God calls a return. And there's two kinds of return. One is the return back to our folly. That always precedes the need for revival. So God saves us and then what do we do? We return back to our old ways. Like Remember the story of Lot's wife? By the way, that was in like a kid's book when I was little. Not a kid's story. 
Lot's wife, God says, don't turn back. She turns back, pillar of salt. There was a legit child's animated photo of her as a pillar of salt when I was a kid. And I thought back on that, I'm like, I respect it, just straightforward, you know? What's the point of Lot's wife? Well, she's a symbol, and she's a symbol of what? That when we turn our eyes back to that which God saved us from, that we have now set a new trajectory, and that trajectory, if not counteracted, will lead to our destruction. Revival is God's counteraction. The call to return is God's counteraction to bring us back to himself. You see this over and over again in the scriptures. Peter calls it for the Christian. It's like a dog returning to his own vomit. That we go back. Children of Israel want to go back to Egypt. Now, what does return look like? It looks like a repentance of our wicked ways. It looks like a desire for God and his glory. Now, in a world that's so obsessed with progress, we struggle with this because we don't like the idea of backtracking at all. You'll even hear this in most modern day thinkers. We think progress to the end. This is mostly what the project of our modern day is. Everything's progressing, we're progressing. Soon we won't even have to worry about death because we'll progress and we won't even die. Now the problem with this is for the Christian, there is no benefit for us to progress if we're progressing further from the Lord. If our direction is rebellion, if our direction is straying, we shouldn't progress more. We have to stop and backtrack in order to correct that which has gone wrong. An example of this is something like if you've ever been at the beach or maybe driving a car, you know that if you realize your tires begin to spin and you're getting stuck, what's the thing that you have to do immediately? Stop hitting the gas. It's the first thing. Stop hitting the gas. Now I know that some of you are going to say, yeah, but sometimes you can just really rear it and you just really start fishtailing and then I'm out of there, you know? Also, if you've ever seen someone, though, that just keeps hitting the gas, you usually have a group of guys that are staying there watching as they just start to sink lower and lower and lower. And it gets to the frame and they're like, and every, every couple of seconds, another tool is required to get that thing out. Like at first it was like, okay, we need a couple of plywood boards. Okay, now we need a winch. Okay, now we need a wrecker truck. This keeps getting worse. Stop progressing. Stop continuing and getting further entrenched in this spiritual condition. C.S. Lewis said it like this. To all the progressives, his challenge was, you have to treat your spiritual condition like a math problem. You don't realize you've gone wrong in a math problem and then keep going and hope it works out. Hope you get to the right answer later. He says, you stop and you go backtrack until you realize where you went wrong and then you course correct and move forward from there. The error of the Israelites, as is always true with the people of God who are in need of revival, is an error of affections and an error of behavior. They lost the love for the Lord their God. They become numb to the wickedness around them. And they began to join in with the nations and not only approve of the nation's behavior, but join in heartily. What happens to Israel by the end is they not only allow the behavior of the other nations, but they become even better than them at the debauchery. Now, what would be the return of God for the Israelites? They had to first come back to the, their love they had at first and affection, repent of their rebellion, and then begin in reformation of their lives. And now we come to the core issue that I think, and I'm going to close with this, the core issue that we all have to overcome. And that's for those of you who are listening to me right now, and you hear me, you agree with me, but you think, I'm not that bad like, you're, like the Israelites. I'm not, I'm not as bad as you're saying. Or if, and especially if you're a member, I want you to hear me. You're saying something like, yeah, court, I know this is your drum that you beat, repentance and faith. I'm already doing that. 
Like you already got me off social media. Leave me alone. And I want to, I want to, just, I want to implore you most of all to just say, don't check out on me yet. This is not an uncommon thought. I confess I've had this thought at times as well. I've even voiced it inwardly. I want to answer that concern last because I think it's so important before we take of the Lord's table. And I don't intend to treat it with mocking objection. Because if we don't overcome this, my fear is that we ultimately will fall into the pattern of our forefathers in the desert. So let's answer it. Are we really that bad? Three points, very quick. First is, our litmus test is with each other, and this clouds our judgment about righteousness. Our litmus test is with each other, and so it clouds our judgment about righteousness. We hear the words like, repent of your wickedness, and then we turn on the television and we see rampant wickedness everywhere. Even if we don't call it that, we see behavior that aligns. And so we surmise that we must be righteous too, because at least we don't take our kids to drag queen story hour. And this is another reason that it's imperative for us to take a break and fast during January. It's very simple. So that we can eliminate that litmus test, the Bible does not call us to be holy only insofar as holiness is defined by our neighbor's holiness, but that we should be holy even as Christ is holy. And if our eyes are not on Christ, then we won't have a vision for what that means, and therefore we will be irritated at those who say, why aren't we pursuing holiness? And I want to be clear. I'm not saying, why aren't you? I'm saying, us. We must return to the Lord. Remember what J.I. Packer said. He said, first God comes close, then sin is seen, and then the gospel is loved. We want the gospel to be cherished, the gospel to be loved, but we first need the Lord to come near so that we can see sin, so that we cherish the Savior. Now, number two, and this, this may be my most important, and I'm really glad that I'm doing it at the end where I have to rush it. That's sarcasm. Repenting of sin and returning to God is not a ceasing of, the, of pleasure. It's the renewal and consummation of it. It is pleasure in its true form. When we think of revival, if we think everything fun in my life will be removed and it will be, it will be replaced with everything that's dull in my life, you have missed what the Bible has to say about revival, and you've jammed in a cultural handmaid's tale about revival. That's what we're thinking. The reason we respond this way is because we've been burdened by the commands of God, and we feel like somebody like me getting up here calling us to repentance and faith is just another religious man's browbeating exercise, cajoling me into obedience, the preacher man getting up there and getting on his high horse, on his soapbox. But I want you to know, in reality, this call is deep from my own self, not to a group, but to myself. I desire that you would experience real joy and real peace. And I know that there is no other way to get water but from one fountain. It is not austerity that I desire for you. Here is what I truly believe in my heart of hearts. Austerity is coming if we don't return to God. And it's in the worst ways. It will be not an austerity that's offered to you, but required of you. I want you to reflect on this. Are the things that you and I are eagerly defending in our lives to protect from God, do they really bring us the joy they promise? Really reflect. I'm not asking you to say it, and maybe I'm crazy. That overconsumption of substances, does it really bring you joy? Like, is it really like, it's, it's like, oh man, I had a New Year's resolution. 
to really drink more, and I'm so glad I did it. You know? How about if you've been fasting, like the hours of mindless scrolling, has it like ruined your life that you haven't been doing it? Are you just like, you know what I wish I was doing? I wish I was vegetating right now in front of a screen. The constant rat race of financial prosperity that wastes away far more quickly than it's ever gained. How about the lustful lingering on websites that keeps us from our true intimacy with our covenant spouse? Are you, just, are you, are you really like, I will defend that to the end? The right to be able to have that website. Really? How about your perpetual, or a perpetual obsession with the latest breaking news? Just reminding us that the world is falling apart at an alarming rate. Right? Like, you know what I really look forward to? Getting home, turning on Fox, Sean Hannity, tell me how bad it is. You know, that's, feed it to me. And, but we do that, but we know intuitively, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm the same, I watch it and I'm just, I'm just hooked to it. Tell me how bad it's going to get. Tell me it's worse. Tell me it's worse. How about our ruminating bitterness towards our old friends, towards our family members? Is it really bringing us joy to hold on to those grudges? Hold on to that unforgiveness? Our constant bickering at perceived slights, perceived wrongs, upset feelings about minute things, is it really, that's really keeping you going? If we truly reflect any sin that God would call us to repent of, has not given us an ounce of the peace or pleasure that it promises. It's robbed us. It's kept us away. It's kept us down. It's kept us in shame. It's kept us in guilt. It's kept us in condemnation. And we defend it in a Stockholm syndrome where we begin to identify with our attacker and say, ah, I love my captor. No, God is not offering us a handmaid's tale. This is the biggest thing. He is offering you joy unspeakable and full of glory. And we ought to desire it. And then lastly, even if nothing I just said resonated, and perhaps you're already nailing it. And, and I want to say, it's not biblical or right to say it's impossible for you to be living a life pleasing to God. After all, why would Romans 12 exist if it weren't so? Because of Christ, we can please the Lord. But I want to say this. If we are reckoning that we have attained that life, and yet we do not desire that our neighbors, our non-believing friends, our non-believing family experience God in a real way that revival would bring, then perhaps we need to have another conversation about whether we understand true biblical godliness. We ought to desire that God would come in and do supernaturally certain things that maybe for years have been withheld. And you don't know why, but you've prayed for this family member. And if something like God bringing revival would just happen upon us, that they might know the Lord Jesus. It should be the deepest longings of our heart that it would be so. Even if God in his providential timing says no, we should long for it. We should desire that not only our homes are whole and happy in the Lord, but that every neighbor of ours would be happy in the Lord. We should long for the day when the spirit of God has fallen on our society in such a way that the primary conversation of our politicians is not whether or not we should mutilate the genitals of children and then make it legal, but whether or not we're even honoring God who created those children and made them sacred, whether we're truly honoring them enough. And the fact that you and I think about that and we find it so incredulous just proves that you and I don't really know what revival could bring. We don't really believe that God could do something of that sort. And yet history has proven that he does. The little town of Nineveh was moved and changed overnight when a king repented and Nineveh was the chief wicked city. 
As is always the case, we arrive at the crux. Revival hangs upon something very simple, faith. Do we believe that the result of this kind of return to the Lord would be exactly what God promises to us? Blessing, life, fullness, delight, abundance. Do we believe that? Or do we believe the serpent who says, he'd never give you that, he just wants to take from you? Do we believe that there's nothing that you could give up through repentance of sin that would not be exponentially returned to you in its actual, true, ordinate state in pleasure and blessings forevermore from God himself? Or do we believe the serpent who says, no, he just wants an austere life for you and he's keeping it from you? So my prayer is very simple. God, help us to believe. Give us a vision for revival that's not clouded by the lies of Satan or the disillusionment of our hearts, but is only moved by you. Give us a love for our neighbor that we might be brokenhearted as God the Father is brokenhearted for his lost children. And give us the faith to cling to your promise. God, after all, has promised that if we return to him, he will return to us. So I want to pray. But before I do, I'm going to read the end of Psalm 85. This is what the writer, the sons of Korah, write here in their faith of what they believe God will do. They say, are you going to be angry with us forever? And then they say in verse 9, Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. That's what they believed. And my prayer is that we would be a generation that would believe that even if it happens in our children's day. Let me pray for us. Father, I confess to you now, I stand on a stage, but my heart's not there. My heart bows before you in recognition that I too can fall short, desire things that are, as as your servant C.S. Lewis said, like mud pies in a slum and you're offering me a holiday at the sea. God, give us a taste for eternal realities. Give us a taste for true pleasure in you. Give us a taste for what it means to delight in you. As we take of your table and your supper, teach us spiritually what it would mean to be satiated, our thirst be quenched. Give us a taste of what it would mean to experience the pleasures that are at your right hand forevermore. And as we sing, my God, give us a voice that does not come from us. As we see our sin, give us a glimpse of our Savior. Do not let us leave out of here, Lord, without the joy unspeakable that you've promised. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.